the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. How does God often rescue us? By waking us up. By sometimes allowing hardship that comes into our lives to stir our hearts. God doesn't delight in seeing us suffer, but what does it take for us to get to the place of brokenness and repentance and contrition before Him? What God used for His people was another foreign king. Come, you attack, and my people then will turn to me. And that's exactly what they would do. And we know this to be true with human nature. We get ourselves in a mess, we cry out to God. And that's often how it works. And God is gracious to deliver us, as He did with them. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through judges. No one likes being disciplined, but any parent who loves their child will teach them right from wrong, even if the lesson is a hard one. In today's message, Pastor Gary takes us through the cycle that Israel underwent during the time of the judges. Every time they fell back into idol worship, God sent a foreign king to oppress them and remind them how much they needed him. He does the same in our own lives. When we get distracted and start trusting in our own strength, he sends reminders of just how limited that strength is. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message titled, Jesus only. We're going to be in Judges chapters 2 and 3 today. We'll start in chapter 2, make our way to chapter 3, so turn there if you would. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. It says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now, this part I just read is familiar to us because that's the way the book of Joshua concludes. It tells us that Joshua died at the age of 110 and that he was buried uh, there in his own home country, his homeland. And so the writer of Judges is giving us this background as kind of a segue into the current spiritual climate and condition of the people of Israel. So he's reminding us, kind of like a flashback scene in a movie where you just kind of have a quick review of what happened, and then he brings us up to speed here. Verse 10, keep reading. So after that whole generation, after Joshua's generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, they died, another generation grew up 
who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. Notice that. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died... The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Well, so as we read here these verses that I just read with you, we will be reminded of this pattern of sin that we talked about. It starts out here, what we just read, reminding us that Joshua was faithful and Of course, he ended up closing out the book of Joshua with those famous words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But then he dies at the age of 110, and it tells us that when Joshua's entire generation had died, there grew up another generation that neither knew the Lord nor what God had done for the Israelites, which, by the way, is a very sad commentary on the spiritual condition that in just one generation, they had lost sight of the Lord. It's very challenging to me as a parent. For all of us as parents, we have to do our part to make sure that we are instilling in our children the value and the worth and the truth of God and His Word and His love for them through Jesus Christ, that they might have personal relationship so that in a matter of one generation, that wouldn't be lost, but they would be strengthened and grow up to have their own personal relationship with Jesus as well. And tragically, in just a matter of one generation, the people have forsaken the Lord. Joshua and his generation has died, and so the pattern begins, and the people end up falling into sin and idolatry, and then God will allow another people to come and to oppress and to afflict them, just to awaken them spiritually for a season. God disciplines those whom he loves, though the discipline doesn't seem pleasant at the time, and so God is going to use some foreign kings to come alongside and besiege the Israelites so that they will, under their oppression and affliction, cry out to God. And when they cry out to God, God then raises up a judge. We talk about how a judge is a military hero or deliverer. And so a judge is raised up, and then Israel is delivered, and then Israel serves the Lord during the lifetime of that judge. But what happens is when the judge dies, then they get into this pattern, and they forsake the Lord. And that's what we have happening here. And it starts with the first generation after Joshua's death. So the people cry out to the Lord, and you'll notice God is going to raise up 12 judges through the book of Judges. Go to chapter 3 now, where we are introduced to the first of the 12 judges, starting in verse 7, a guy by the name of Othniel. 
Now for you note takers, Othniel translates in Hebrew force or strength of God. That's what his name means, force or strength of God. He's considered one of the major judges of Israel. There are six major and six minor. And he gets a little bit of press here, verses 7 to 11, enough that makes him considered one of the major judges of Israel. And this is what we read here in Judges 3, starting in verse 7. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, here's this cycle, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for, circle this, 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So we're introduced here to the first judge of Israel. Again, his name means force or strength of God. The Bible tells us that he is the younger brother of Caleb. Now, Caleb is one of those original two, Caleb and Joshua, from that original generation of slaves in Egypt who make it to the promised land. Only those two, the rest of the generation dies in the wilderness. That's this Caleb. And it is his younger brother, Othniel, who will be the first judge of Israel. By the way, the Bible tells us that Othniel was also Caleb's son-in-law. I thought you said he was his brother. Yeah, he's his brother and his son-in-law. How's that possible? When you marry your brother's daughter. That's what happens. Yeah, that's what he did. He's trying to keep it all in the trailer, I guess. I don't know. That's what's happening here. So Othniel is Caleb's younger brother and his son-in-law at the same time. And verse 7 tells us here that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals and Asherahs. Now, the Baals and Asherahs were the false gods of the Canaanites. And because the Israelites had not effectively driven out the Canaanites from the land, the influence of the Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Asherahs, are now seducing the hearts of the Israelites. And they're giving themselves over to sin and idolatry. Baal was the male deity, and Asherah was the female deity, the primary deities of the Canaanites. And notice it is plural, Baals and Asherahs, they're in verse 7, because there are several kinds of Baal gods and Asherah goddesses that the Canaanites worshipped. And actually, throughout the Bible, we have a list of several of them. And for you note-takers, I'll just share a few of them with you. We have in the Bible a list, for example, a reference to Baal Gad, which translates Lord of Good Fortune in Joshua chapter 11. There's also a reference to Baal Hamon, translating Lord of the Multitude in Song of Solomon chapter 8. Another reference to one of these Canaanite Baal gods, Baal Hazor, meaning Lord of the Village in the Second Samuel 13. Then there's also a mention of uh, Baal Mion, meaning Lord of the Dwelling in Numbers chapter 32. A mention of Baal Peor, meaning Lord of the Opening in Deuteronomy 4.3. And probably the most familiar of the Baals is Baal Zebub. Baal, by the way, just means Lord, small l. And Beelzebub translates Lord of the Flies. They believed that there was a God who would protect the harvest by 
chasing away flies. And this particular deity, Beelzebub, becomes the principal chief god of the Canaanites, so much so that we see a reference to Beelzebub in the New Testament, don't we? It's spelled a little bit differently in the Greek transliteration. It's B-E-E-L instead of B-A-A-L. But Beelzebub is what the Pharisees call Jesus. Because when Jesus was driving out demons, the Pharisees who did not want to attribute Jesus' power to divinity, to God, they attribute then his power to demons. And so the Pharisees said about Jesus that you're just simply driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that's when Jesus said, whoa, that doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided itself cannot stand. Why would Satan drive out Satan? If you think that I'm performing in the power of Beelzebub, why in the world would I be driving out demons? And so they use that term in the New Testament as a derogatory term to accuse Jesus of operating in demonic powers. Of course, we know that isn't true, but it's a carryover of this God, Beelzebub, from the Old Testament. But Baal and Asherah were the principal gods of the Canaanites, and they were gods of fertility and agriculture, the gods of fertility and agriculture. And it's important for you to know how these gods were worshipped because it says a lot about the spiritual decline of the people of Israel. Here's how they would be principally worshipped, through sexual immorality, through ritual prostitution, through self-mutilation and human sacrifice. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were giving in to the worship of these false gods because they had not driven out the ungodly influence of the land and now it is creeping into their own hearts and they are engaging in sexual immorality, ritualistic prostitution, human sacrifice, and self-mutilation. No wonder then we read there in chapter 3, verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against them because this is what they're doing. The anger of the Lord burned against them. And so God sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. Aram Naharaim is basically the northern part of ancient Mesopotamia. If you looked at a map today, it would be the northeastern part of Syria. Uh, Aram often a reference to Syria. And God will use the king of Syria to come and to spank his kids. Look, God disciplines those whom he loves. He is not going to be content to allow his own people to just give into and give way to all this kind of sin and idolatry. He's going to rescue them. And how does God often rescue us? By waking us up. By sometimes allowing hardship that comes into our lives to stir our hearts. God doesn't delight in seeing us suffer, but what does it take for us to get to the place of brokenness and repentance and contrition before him? And what God used for his people was another foreign king. Come, you attack, and my people then will turn to me. And that's exactly what they would do. And we know this to be true with human nature. We get ourselves in a mess, we cry out to God. And that's often how it works. And God is gracious to deliver us, as he did with them. And so here comes the king of Aram, and for eight years the people are subject to him. But then God raises up Othniel as a warrior, as this guy who's going to come and lead the people of Israel, and they fight against, and God gives the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel and the people of Israel. And as a result, they experience... 40 years of peace. Because it tells us in verse 10 that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel, which, by the way, we see throughout the Old Testament from time to time. It's different from the New Testament pouring out of God's Spirit upon all flesh who believe in Jesus. That's Acts chapter 2. The Spirit was only poured out on assignment on particular people that God chose. Othniel was one of them. And he gets the Spirit of the Lord to empower him and equip him to do the work that God's called him to do here. And Othniel rises up and becomes this judge of Israel as God appoints him, as God raises him up. 
And as a result of his leadership and of the victory over the people of Aram, they experienced peace for 40 years, verse 11. By the way, five times the amount of years of peace as the years of oppression. Now, Othniel dies. That's what we read at the end of verse 11, that he died. And so keep reading verse 12. Once again, here's the pattern. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Moab, by the way, would be on a map in modern Jordan today, just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Here's the second judge of Israel, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. So we're introduced here now to the second judge of Israel. His name is Ehud. His name in Hebrew translates united or union. And those of you familiar with some recent history of Israel will remember that two of their recent prime ministers were named Ehud. Ehud Barak in the late 90s and Ehud Omert, who served as prime minister in the early 2000s. And Ehud in Hebrew, often if you hear somebody on the streets of Israel being called Udi, Udi is a nickname for Ehud. And this is the second judge of Israel. And the Bible tells us there in verse 15, and pay particular attention to this. It's not just a passing bit of information. It's an important part to the story that Ehud is a left-handed man. He is a left-handed man. Let's read on here. And so, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Here's how it would work in the ancient days. If you became a subject of another foreign empire then you had to, for the privilege of keeping your life, continue to pay tribute or taxation to the king that has just overtaken you. So now they have to pay their tribute, they have to pay their dues, if you will, to Eglon, king of Moab. And so it says that the Israelites sent Ehud to Eglon with the tribute. In verse 16, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. You know this is not going to be good, right? For somebody. And verse 17 says that he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now that's also a part of this story, so you need to know that. Now, by the way, this is cruel. Some mom was very cruel, but Eglon's name in Hebrew translates, are you ready? Little calf. Isn't that cruel? I mean, you name your kid little calf, he's going to grow up and be a very fat man. That's just cruel. And can you imagine the kids on the playground when he was little? Hey, little calf, you know, mew, you know. And any, anyway, very cruel. So here we are, verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet. And all his attendants left him. So now... King Eglon and Ehud are alone together in the king's chambers, in his palace. So verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, Psst, I have a message from God for you. 
As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. This is kind of gruesome. I hope you ate already. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, this is funny. They said, well, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. He's on the pot. It's taken him a while. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. Isn't the Bible rich? I love this story. They waited. This is just so everyday stuff here. So they waited to the point of embarrassment. When are you coming out? You know, that kind of a thing. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. And while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down, notice, about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for circle it 80 years. Now... This is kind of a bizarre scene here, but God is going to raise up Ehud to be this mighty warrior, to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. It tells us that he is a left-handed man. There are only three references in all of the Bible to left-handed people. Only three references to left-handed people. And every single time there's a reference to someone left-handed in the Bible, they are of the tribe of Benjamin. It appears that there is some genetic predisposition to left-handedness among the tribe of Benjamin. Ehud is a Benjamite. He is left-handed. And left-handed people in especially hand-to-hand combat have an advantage because right-handed people are used to fighting right-handed people. But when you come unto a person who's left-handed and they're wielding the sword in the left hand, you are more vulnerable to the element of surprise. Left-handed people also have an advantage in sports, by the way. If you play tennis... Now, I'm kind of one of these guys, I write with my right hand, I play all my sports left-handed. So when I play tennis left-handed and somebody lobs the ball to what they think is my backhand, they're actually serving it to my forehand. And so you have an advantage when you're left-handed. If you are a left-handed pitcher, you have an advantage. You can keep your eye on first base while you're pitching and making sure the runner is on first base. If you are a left-handed boxer, a southpaw boxer has a great advantage over an orthodox boxer. Not only because of your stance, but because the left-handed, a southpaw boxer, has a mean right hook that is often undetected. There's a lot of advantages to left-handed people when it comes to sports and physical things and hand-to-hand combat. So was the case here with Ehud. Typically in this day, most fighters would fight with their right hand. He was left-handed. Even if he was frisked when he came in to see the king... Only his left side would have been frisked because a right-handed fighter would have drawn the sword with a right hand from the left side. But he, being a left-handed fighter, has his sword underneath his clothing strapped to his right thigh so that he can cross his body to grab it in order to plunge it into the belly of the king. Now, as he does this, you know, this is a rather intense scene here. He plunges this sword with his left hand into the belly of the king. The Bible says that the point of the sword comes out the king's back. 
and the handle of the sword gets absorbed into the belly fat of the king, and Ehud basically says, you can keep it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going in after that. And so the king dies. Throughout the book of Judges, God was with the nation of Israel. When they were following him, God's blessing flowed and filled their land. When they turned away from him, he didn't abandon them, but instead brought forth judges to help them see the error of their ways and how life with him was so much better. This cycle of living that the Israelites fell into is what we've been studying with Pastor Gary Hamrick. And we're so glad you joined us again today. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we love being able to share God's Word with you and learning with you what God has to teach us. If you'd like to hear more from the book of Judges or the number of other Bible books Pastor Gary has taught through, you'll find them at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also have companion resources that offer an even deeper look into these studies, which you can use to enhance your own time with God in His Word. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia, and we'd love to meet you in person. Come see us Sundays at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for our time of worship and Bible study. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today, but join us again for another step into the lives of the Israelites right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.